This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Jack Hendler, one of the co-founders of Jack's Abbey Brewing and Springdale Barrel House. Did I get that right, Jack? Uh, just Springdale just or Springdale? the Barrel Room, but okay. just Springdale is fine. Springdale, uh, a, uh, the non-logger brand uh, from Jack's Abbey. Uh, we are sitting here in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts, in their production brewery. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining me on the podcast, Jack. Yeah, glad to be here. Give me a little bit of backstory. When you guys started uh, Jack's Abbey, the idea of launching a craft brewery to only make lagers seemed like a pretty weird idea. Um, you could probably count the number of craft breweries in America that were doing that on uh, you know two hands, uh, maybe even one. Uh, what was your inspiration behind that? And, uh, you know, just give me a quick arc to how you got here uh, and uh, have made something like our uh, number two spot on a reader survey for best lager brewery, lager craft brewery in America. Um, you know, what was the inspiration? How'd you get here? I think kind of how you described it was sort of the reasoning behind it. There weren't a lot of people brewing lagers and certainly not a lot of breweries just brewing lager. And... I laugh every time I say this, but when we opened seven years ago, 2011, we thought the market was saturated and we wanted to be unique and we knew we wanted to focus on lagers, but having a niche like only brewing lagers seemed really unique at the time and it was for us a a good way to get into the market. Um, Obviously, a lot's changed since then. How how did you get into brewing? what uh, What brought you into the world of brewing? Uh, I think I have a somewhat unusual take on how I got in. I didn't get in because I was a home brewer. I was more interested in the process. So I grew up, grew up in a family business, um, a manufacturing business. So I was really interested in manufacturing, understanding processes, um, being around equipment. And uh, obviously, if you look around a brewery, you have a lot of similar pieces of equipment. It's very process oriented. Um, So when I finished college, I got a brewing job and was able to learn the the trade from... Straight into a brewing job with no home brew. From the commercial side without understanding. I didn't know how to make beer when I got my first brewing job. I didn't know what IPA was. I didn't (laughs) like IPA. Yeah. It took me probably a year of brewing before I enjoyed an IPA. Um, so I definitely come at it from a little bit of a different perspective just because I, and I think that's part of the reason that we, that I like brewing lagers. It's so process oriented and it's really about technique, not necessarily, um, what you would expect from if you're coming from a homebrew side. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, and that's all well and good, but separating good lagers from great lagers is part process, you know, uh, part attention to a million different details. Um, but it, there's also some inspiration there. Uh, how did you go from not being an IPA drinker and working in, in you know, at another brewery to uh, developing the ideas for beer recipes and then honing in some of these processes to kind of 
make those a realistic thing? Well, I, once I got into brewing, I quickly also got into home brewing. So I was able to really understand sort of the creative side yeah. of the brewing process, but also just through experiences, whether it was traveling. The first real great beer experience I had was in Germany, hanging out with all people, <laughs> hanging out with my mother <laughs> at a beer garden and uh, just really appreciating not even the beer, which was great, but the environment and the atmosphere and the culture of beer. And so kind of combining that great experience with learning the brewing process really helped to direct me to thinking about lagers and really wanting to brew great. And we do a lot of American styles, but continental, German, Czech, other European uh, lager styles. Sure. with each of those, uh, you know, it's, it, I think it's a it's a broad thing to say that you brew each one of those styles, but um, you know, when when American tasters are drinking your lagers, um, there is a general quality across the whole spectrum of the beers that you make that you know gets reflected in that, um, you know, and our our reviewers at the magazine have have sensed that, and they the, your beers rate very highly, even against uh, you know European lagers and other top lagers in America. Um, what is, you know, in a nutshell, uh, how did you, you know, whether that's a process approach or whether that's a recipe approach or some combination of all of those, um, for, for the, each of these recipes, um, develop an idea for what the beer is that you wanted to make and then hone that in to kind of get to the, the, the final beer that you're happy with? A lot of components to that question. So... <laughs> For I'm just trying to, you know, wrapping your head around this. Like so, you say, you know, you want to, it's one thing to say, I want to brew a lager. It's another thing to say, I want to brew this kind of lager that tastes this way, that has this physical expression, that has this quality of foam in the head as somebody drinks it, you know. Uh, and then, I mean, there's a whole lot of pieces that go into kind of building that kind of beer. It's more than just, hey, what this is what the recipe is, right? Absolutely. I, I think sometimes this may be somewhat controversial, but I think recipe formulation is a bit overrated. Um, there's only four ingredients. And unless you're trying to brew a Hellas with roasted barley, you're probably going to be close, plus or minus 3% on one malt versus another malt or one hop versus another hop. You can make great beer with as long as you're in the ballpark on the recipe. It really comes down to process, and for us, our process is what makes us unique. I don't care about telling people what we put in our beer, what our recipe is, because I know no one's, not no one, I know there's not a lot of people who are going to try to replicate what we do, because what we do is really hard. Um, We're one of the largest decoction brewers in this country, Um, so right off the bat, probably 99% of the brewers out there can't do decoction. And they're right, right there. That's a huge differentiation for so, what we're doing. Yeah. What does <clears throat> what does that de- decoction add? And and are you do, are you doing single decoction, multi step decoction? You know, what is or is that different for every beer? Um, de- decoction is a bit of a controversial. It's not controversial, but there's very strong opinions even among the German brewers, and. We, we typically do a single decoction. We do play around with some double decoctions, but 
with today's malts, you really have to be careful when you're doing decoctions to understand your malts. And today's malt does not lend itself well to doing multi-step decoctions. And you're probably doing more damage to your beer than you're adding to your beer if you're doing more than one decoction. The caveat being, if you're really choosing poorly modified malt, if you're using a lot of maybe unmalted grains, then having a multi-step decoction may be more appropriate. But when I talk to our maltsters, even the German maltsters, they really don't recommend doing more than one. And that's because of the really highly modified nature of today's malt. So it begs the question, where do you do your decoction steps? So you can do a decoction at your acid rest, your protein rest. You got two uh, sacrification temp rests. But when you start adding more decoctions, you're really adding a lot of time to each step and you may be over modifying your, your mash. So you really got to um, think about what malt you're using, what the recommendation is, and what your final goal is. Because if you're... Um, you over modify, maybe you won't have any head retention. That that's probably the number one uh, issue. Is if you're doing a double decoction, you're probably gonna have to do some sort of protein rest, or you're gonna have a really dry beer because you um, let it sit in the mash zone for an extended period of time. Yeah. So that's why we sort of avoid the double decoctions, except for um, some specific. Um, beers when we're mainly for having fun, but not for um, any sort of production, large production quantities. Um, you mentioned the recipe doesn't matter, um, but at the same time, you mentioned the importance of ingredients. And I, you know, where's the distinction between those things for you? Right. When I was saying um, the importance of the ingredients, it, it, it was related to the process from which we were using it. So again, what malt you're using. Most malt that you're going to get is going to be really highly modified, high quality malt. Um, we've actually, because we want to do a lot more multi-decoction brews, we've asked maltsters to make us some really poorly modified malt <laughs> and they all kind of laugh at us and say, yeah, there's no way we're doing that for you. But uh, it is it is interesting potentially for some of the smaller maltsters that are popping up who may not have as refined uh, equipment for the craft malting side to, to have some lower modified malt that may be interesting for multi-decoction brews. They can also do it in batch sizes that uh, make more sense uh, compared to the workflows of some of the bigger bigger maltsters out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you insist on things like, uh, you know, German imported malt for your, uh, you know, German and Czech style lagers or, uh, you know, do you take a more flexible approach to, to, to malts? We do. So if any, basically how we divide our, our products is, are products that we give a traditional style name to. So if the beer is called a Hellas or a Pilsner, we will use all traditional malts from typically German. Uh, if it's more of an American style like IPL, uh, we'll use American malts. We're not as particular, but we want to make sure that beers that we say are traditional styles are as traditional in character as possible. So if it's a tr traditional style lager, they're all decoction mashed. They're all naturally carbonated. This one thing that people don't really think about is that when we say beer has four ingredients, in reality, for 99% of the brewers out there, there's a fifth ingredient. It's carbon dioxide. We're adding carbon dioxide from typically CO2 comes from 
uh, as a byproduct of manufacturing, typically with the petroleum industry. So you're adding CO2 that comes from questionable sources, potentially, even if it is highly purified. And it's one of those things that in Rhine Heights Capote, you can't add CO2. Uh, you have to find another way to carbonate your product. So for us, it's really important that all our beers are naturally carbonated and traditional in that sense as well. And in doing so, we found that there's a huge flavor component to what we call spunding or is known as spunding. If you force carbonate, you stress your yeast out. And just that fact alone changes the flavor profile of your finished product. Um, so what, at what point of the, the fermentation uh, process do you start to, to spun the tanks? So for spunding, for those who aren't familiar with that process, spunding or bunging is when you seal up your tank and allow all the CO2 that's created in the fermentation process to stay in solution. For us, that typically means that one to two Play-Doh above terminal is where you may want to do that. Now, I wouldn't recommend anyone who doesn't have very high controls over their process do this. Uh, there's some obvious safety issues sure. here um, with high pressures, but you should be able to basic things like force fermentation so you know where your beer is going to end out, um, proper pressure relief valves, and uh, sort of understanding your fermentation and how, how your yeast are going to react. Uh, you can spun ales, but uh, the pressure we find doesn't work as well for a lot of ale streams and not happy about the high pressures where, where our lager yeast doesn't really seem to mind. Yeah. From a sensory perspective, what, you know, what do you find about carbon dioxide that's generated through that kind of spunding process, uh, you know, versus forced carbonated, uh, you know, beers? And, you know, obviously within your process, you're doing both because you do have an ale side of the brewer house uh, in addition to the, the lager side. Um, what, you know, what's the difference from a, you know, from a, a drinking perspective? I, I wouldn't want to overstate the difference. There's not necessarily, you may not necessarily be able to, to tell the difference if you, if you're unaware uh, of the difference, but you have a bit of a finer bubble for natural carbonation. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a bit of a harsher CO2 bite when you, when you do uh, forced carbonation, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily something your average consumer can, can pick up. Um, yeah, you know, but again, some of these, I think, you know, when we're, we're parsing a, you know, a difference between good and great in beer now. Well, I, I think, really I think the issue range. isn't CO2, though. Yeah. I think the issue is, or not the issue, I think the reason that the beers, in my opinion, taste more traditional when you spun them is there's a yeast fermentation character yeah. that is causing that variation where the CO2 definitely has a factor but it's more in the the fermentation profile than it is in the in the CO two. When that yeast goes under that stress, what or what kind of flavor, you know? And again, we're talking about very slight things here. What is it, you know, that that, that yeast stress causes, uh, you know, in terms of what you end up perceiving in the beer? Well, one of the biggest things that you do when you bung is you seal in all the flavors, so everything it's creating gets yeah. held in that tank. And some people may not like some of the flavors that get held in the tank, particularly sulfur compounds. Okay. Now, I'm, I happen to be a, a proponent of an appropriate level of sulfur compounds. Sure. And I think that they are very traditional, a lot of, uh, lot of lager styles. 
Um, and you don't get that incorporation when you don't when you don't spawn the tanks. All that sulfur that's created by off, fermentation yeah. blows off. It's very volatile. Uh, even if you're drinking a beer that has some sulfur, typically by the third sip, you don't even smell it anymore. Sure. Um, so by spunding, you, you keep some of those off flavors. Off flavors may not be the right word in this context. Attributes. You, Attributes. You, yeah, you, what would otherwise yeah. be known as an off flavor in solution, and you can incorporate those flavors. Um, and again, are they better or worse? I, won't, I, I, I wouldn't say they're a better flavor, they're a worse flavor, but if you're trying to recreate a German-style lager, there's no other way to create those flavors because that's the flavor profile. Yeah, By yeah. law, you have to spun your tanks, or you don't have to spun your tanks, you have to naturally carbonate, so most people spun. Um, and if you're going to spun, those are the flavors that are going to be in your yeah. beer. So if you're not doing that, you're not going to create those traditional flavors that you would get when you drink in Germany. For sure. Um, you know, and, I'm, and I wonder, though, if, if now we're talking about a whole bunch of things working together to create balance in their own different way, other than, you know, this other typical American way where, you know, yes, you're creating more sulfur compounds that may be in there, but you're also, you know, you've got a slightly sweeter, slightly, you know, richer malt character coming out of the same base malt because you're decocting. And, you know, this whole series of additional things now that are in the beer in these very small ways are working at this in this different way to kind of balance each of those things out that uh, in there in a in a way that you know you could do it without those and it could still be balanced it's just different and uh, you know and that's creating its own separate kind of balance absolutely you can't look at one individual factor you got to look at the entire process from start to finish and each one if you just did one you're probably not necessarily going to change your product but if yeah. you go down the entire entire uh, process and you change everything uh, then you start to see these really add up and contribute certainly when we started brewing lagers we didn't have a decoction brew house our goal was essentially brewing clean beer and you can have great clean beer but it's not necessarily going to mimic a lot of the great beers that you would get when you when you go overseas it was really our goal when we built this new facility to be as traditional as possible decoction on its own may or may not change your product uh, to a, a noticeable change. We think it adds flavor and character to our beer, and we can tell the difference between the beers we decoct and we don't decoct. What, but the other thing I always tell people, decoction doesn't make beer better. It's all personal preference. If you want a traditional German-style lager, decoction is going to be important. If you just want a traditional great-tasting lager, Decoction may not be important. There's plenty of German brewers that don't decoct their beers, and you don't need to to create great lagers. But if you want to, you won't be able to create certain flavor compounds without that process. That makes sense. You you <clears throat> mention a lot that your goal and your vision, you know, with these kinds of lagers, if you're going to put that historical style name on it, is to make something that is that really you know fits the historical conception of that style you know this is something i think american brewers struggle with all the time the idea of trying to you know follow some idea of a model and, and because you know even trying to make it like when we say german style germany's all over the map with how they make these that's, things that's czechoslovakia is way all over the map belgium way all over the map with the way that they make things that we might consider traditional styles and so you know when we have things like the bjcp style guide or the gabf you know style guide um you know these things are written in a way that you know folks have tried to kind of, you know, find some, you know, middle 
20 or 30 percent of this wide range of of stuff and kind of you know you know create a center lane for that um you know but the the actual range of styles and the you know where they these styles were originally brewed is just much more diverse than that so like for you how do you hone in on something then within this breadth of you know german examples uh you know for some of these lagers and say hey this is what we want this is the kind of thing that we want to do um and how does you know when you make those aesthetic choices about you know what that kind of where you want to be with that how's that you know how do you then extend that across your other beers so that they all feel like they're a part of this jack's abbey hole and they become you know some natural extension of, of of what now people think of as jack's abbey well as far as inspiration goes i travel probably more than my brothers would would like me to travel <laughs> i i go to germany twice a year sometimes three, and I drink as much beer as I can, and I, I try to get an understanding, big brewers, small brewers, um, packaged brewers, just draft brewers, brew pubs, and get a understanding of, of a wide variety of styles and see what, what products I really enjoy drinking. And we're, we're able to then come back to the brewery here. At, you know, after we, after we find beer that we really like, in Germany, I'm typically going around Franconia, Bavaria, and we're because we have the facilities here to to do a lot of unique things. We're able to recreate a lot of those flavors. So we're taking inspiration. We're we're sort of getting uh, an idea of what what a lot of German brewers are are doing. We're talking to them. We're asking them how we can do things differently here because obviously we, I, I come from a, a brew pub background. I learned how to, how to brew from American brewers and American brewers typically, at least when I started, were learning from the English brewers and there was less influence from the German brewers. So we're able to have through these relationships, particularly from our vendors, from our, our hop suppliers, our, our malt suppliers, um, get a get a better understanding of how we can brew beer better here in the U.S. Are there any uh, particular ingredients that you've you've found in your travels um, that have struck you? Uh, you know, specific malts in particular. Um, you know that you have been so moved by that you've you've had to bring them back and start using them in the brew house. I think there's a pretty dramatic difference between Pilsner malt and American Turo malts. We use Tiro a lot for our American-style beers, yeah. but the Pilsner malt is, at least the Pilsner malt that we get from Germany, gives a very different flavor, character to your finished beer. It's something that we, we find it almost to be overwhelming at times, mm. uh, so we don't use it for hoppy beer styles. Uh, we, we think it clashes too much, where the American Tiro is much cleaner, um, gives you... Uh, more of a opportunity to use hops and get more hop flavor when, when you use them. Not to say that you can't use hops with Pilsner malt, but you just have to be care more careful about how they're how they're interacting and what what varieties you're what, using. What is that Pilsner malt creating in the in the finished beer in terms of flavors that start to compete with those hops uh, if you were using them in a more hoppy beer? And we shouldn't say hoppy beer because some of the Pilsners that you make are pretty hoppy beers, also. Right. Yeah. So our Pilsner. Post shift pilsner is still a 
35-ish IBU yeah. beer. We don't dry hop it necessarily. We do a small dry hop version just for the beer hall. But still, that's that's not when I talk about I. You know, we can have a whole conversation. What what is IPA today? <laughs> yeah. but I'm talking about some of the IPAs that we're brewing on the Springdale side that have three, four, five, six pounds of dry hop per barrel, yeah. and how that's interacting with your malt profile um, changes a lot. It may not be as dramatic if you're talking about a West Coast um, more bitter, bitter hop. Uh, bitter um, style of IPA. I think uh, the listeners would kill me if I started talking to you about IPAs. Uh, <laughs> plenty of plenty of brewers out there we can talk to you about that. Um, you know, uh, but it, yeah, is there something about that Pilsner malt that uh, if you were to try to use it in an IPA, that uh, you know, what what flavors does that Pilsner malt produce that you find uh, you know conflict? So. The other thing I should say is when we use Pilsner malt, we're always using it in a decoction process. So it may partly be the decoction mm, process sure. that's creating this. But you get a pretty intense uh, malt character. And I, I like to describe it almost as a grape-like character. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So I personally really like that flavor character. If you get a great Hellas and it has a light grapey note, it's like, where is that? Is that a yeast fermentation? Is that a hop character? I happen to think it's a malt flavor, mm. which makes sense. If you think about Munich or Cara Munich malt, you, someone often will think of like a raisin flavor. Yeah. So if you think about a really light, intense flavor, you kind of get that grape sort of uh, fruitiness that I believe comes from from that Pilsner malt because I see it across the board when we use yeah. uh, Pilsner malts in, um, in our beers. Are there any techniques that you use that uh, people wouldn't uh, suspect or something that you found has made a, uh, a bigger difference than even you thought that it might have made in your process? Um, something that may be small that, um, that had an outsized impact in, uh, in the way that the beers uh, come out. See, I don't even know what other people do at this point, so I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe you just got your own a, process here. A lot of uh, things that we do that's weird. Again, we do a lot of the odd things because we only brew lagers. We, um, for obvious reasons, everything we ferment is really cold. Yeah. So we're fermenting typically at 48 degrees. Oh, wow. That cold. Um, you know, our, our flagship best selling beer is a decoction Hellas that we ferment at 48 degrees and age for five weeks. So we didn't really think about the, <laughs> the finances when we opened this brewery. We just love drinking this beer, yeah. and fortunately, it's worked out for us. Um, we so you have the right a beer time. that's a house lager that you have to sell for a, a lower price because cons- price beer, consumers yeah. expect yeah. that to be it, yeah. and it takes five weeks. It's to our most. House. It's our. It's one of our most. If you factor in time and you factor in not even time in the tank, but time to brew it with the decoction, it's one of our most expensive beers. And of course, uh, lager beer is cheap. Everyone knows that. Easy to, easy to make, and uh, should shouldn't have to pay much for it. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> uh, you guys are still in business, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about dark lagers. You know, I, I think that's one of the, you know, when, when we look at some of the interesting things that uh, you guys have done since the early days, one of the, one of the big things is um, making and bringing back the, uh, real lagered Baltic porters. And, uh, and then also, you know, Schwartz beer is another big part of your core lineup. Um, 
with the smoke and dagger uh, and the framing hammer baltic porter and you you should also include red tape which is our dunkle um our dunkle uh red tapes are uh seasonal for the winter so going back to the story of drinking beer with my mom (laughs) that was uh that beer that i that i had was a dunkle from the hoffer house so it's one of those beer styles that I've always appreciated it and looked back at for inspiration. But I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle when you think about what people associate with lager. And it's changed a lot just in seven years. But when we when we had people come into the brewery seven years ago, we, we got a lot of beer tourists, not necessarily because they knew of us, but they would the people who just went to breweries um, and they would come in and they look at our beer menu, and they're like, you only have lagers on? I don't like lagers. And so it was, It was. why don't you like lagers? Do you, you, you don't like light, fizzy lager, but do you know anything other than that? So there's this association that lager just meant macro light beer. Um, and really people didn't understand that there is so much more that you could do with lager yeast. And that, that was fun. It was a little frustrating at times, but it was a, it was a huge talking point for us. And we were able to explain the process, why, why what we're doing is unique. And we, we've had a lot of, lot of dark lagers that we've done. You talked about Smoke and Dagger, which such an odd beer that's been with us since, I think that was the third beer we ever brewed and we're, we're still selling it. It's a smoked black lager. I wouldn't necessarily call it traditional, I haven't actually encountered a smoked black lager. <laughs> uh, certainly I've had black lagers, but that was sort of our, we don't call that traditional German style. That's sort of our American take on it. I really like smoked beers. Um, and now, it's not overly smoky. Yeah. It's like 10% smoke malt, but it's a beer that I think has a, a really nice balance to it. It's sort of compared to if you think about smoked Balt, uh, smoked porter has sort of a lighter body, easier drink, but still has the nice smoky, roasty flavors to it, and it, it's so pleasing. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about the design of that one. Uh, I'm curious because I just drank a half pint of it uh, while with my pretzel out there in the beer hall before we started talking. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's smoked, but the smoke is very, very subtle in that. Um, and you know, at that kind of percentage, it's, it's really just a kind of a, a hint there, um, you know, that, that adds some complexity to the beer. Uh, you know, at the same time, there's a smoothness, there's no, none of the astringency that some people, you know, sometimes uh, associate with that, that style. Um, you know, how did you smooth out any potential rough edges on that beer and, uh, you know, and produce something that's as cohesive as it is? A lot of times when you talk to brewers or when you people describe beer, I should say, you talk about balance and usually you just associate hops and malt. That's the only thing that's supposed to balance. But most beers, particularly a lot of the beers that we brew, we're not trying to balance malt and hops. We're trying to balance two other characteristics. Um, maybe you're trying to balance... Uh, in a, you know, for Springdale, a lot of times you're trying to balance acidity with some other component. Yeah. Or you're trying to balance um, uh, sweetness. Or there, there's a lot of different ways that you're balancing. Is often not um, malt and hops. And you, you know, you think about going back to New England IPA. You're not balancing malt with anything. You're, you're balancing other components, uh, floral and bitter maybe. 
Um, but for Smoke and Dagger, we're really trying to balance. Fit, we were trying to see if we can balance the smokiness with the roastiness and sort of have them work in, in harmony with each other. So maybe you can smell the smoke. Maybe you can't smell the smoke. Is that a roasty character? Is it a smoky character? And finding the, the correct percentages was a little tough in the beginning, but we feel obviously it's been seven years. We're, we're much more comfortable when we brew that beer. Although really depending on the malt we get, we can see some, some large changes. So if we got a, a fresh batch of smoke malt into the brewery versus a batch that's been sitting in a warehouse for three months, it, it will change the, the balance of that beer. And then sometimes you perceive it as way more smoky and other times roastier. But also finding the right amount of rose characters. So if you look at that beer under light, you can see through it. It has more of a reddish hue to it. Whereas when we brew some of the stouts at Springdale, you put light to it and all you see is black. So finding that balance where you get enough roast and chocolatey and and all those dark malt characters, but also have enough lightness that you're not getting the astringency and the bitterness from the malt, you um, it's, it's sort of the challenge with that style of beer. Or, uh, or what other dark malts do you like to use in that? Uh, and and you know, I guess they're pretty small percentages uh, on top of that. So we'll we we'll use a we typically use a blend of okay. dark malts where. We are concerned a lot about the astringency and bitterness of those style malts. We'll use uh, dehusked yeah. um, malts. I personally just l- really like chocolate malts, and <laughs> it's not certainly not a traditional German malt. Uh, it's uh, even the malt we buy is typically comes from from England. Uh, we're using English uh, chocolate malt, but for me, getting that that rose character that isn't quite as harsh from a chocolate malt is more pleasing than using a lot of the roasted malts. Sure. No, that makes sense. You know, rough percentages on those or do you know off the top of your head? I, I would like to say we're in like the 4% range for roast malts, which, you know, when we're doing style, we could be closer to 10%, Right. but it's enough that really makes it look black, but isn't actually, um, there's there's when you talk about colors as soon as you get over like 20 you're black and right right uh, srm um we're we're probably in that 20 to 25 range where again stouts are closer to that 35 what's your hops approach to that one light light we're really just enough bitterness that we're not the beer's not sweet that's really the only uh we, we don't add any roma hops to that beer it's just bittering hops and we're looking just enough to make sure that it doesn't come out overly sweet and it, it's a little bit more palatable. Yeah. At that point. Let's talk about the Framinghammer uh, Baltic Porter then for a bit. Um, you know, this one, I guess, as you just said, was your way of, of producing a beer geek beer uh, in your lager house. And uh, I guess it's a, it's a great corollary to stouts or imperial stouts that uh, you know, people might otherwise, beer geeks might otherwise be familiar with. And you've now taken that platform and done all sorts of different barrel aging treatments and adjuncting and and gone full pastry on your uh, with your Baltic porter. <laughs> Absolutely. But tell, yeah, tell me a little bit about the genesis of that and some of your ideas behind uh, how you design that base beer so that uh, that Baltic porter is a kind of clean palate for all of the uh, the flavors that you can then layer on top of it. So there's a lot of different 
ways to look at barrel aging beer and we have a lot of ideas over the Springdale side. We do a lot of barrel aging over there. For Framing Hammer in particular, we were looking at looking to balance sort of the bourbon flavor with the Framing Hammer flavor with any of the other flavors that we we were adding like we have peanut butter and jelly sure. we have coconut cocoa nut uh, we like our puns here um super mole or mole flavor um coffee vanilla i don't know if i got them all there do you alter the base recipe for the adjunct that you add to it or is it a consistent base across the board it's a consistent base yeah. so there's a few things. You've got that a sixty barrel brew house, so I imagine you're brewing a bigger batch and then splitting it out into different, uh, you know, threads from there. Or, or yeah, not, or so we're 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 taking the same base beer and we're treating it in similar ways, except for how we're adding ingredients to the barrels yeah. that that it's aging in. For us, we wanted to make sure we're always concerned with wood. About there's two things that really damage clean beer is oxygen and uh, bugs, micro yeah. uh, micro issues. So we designed the beer to give it the best opportunity to store well in those barrels. We have- When we you add, say that, what does that mean? So one is the beer is, which you may not be able to tell from the barrel aging process because it changes, is it's a fairly dry beer. So mm. we, it's not a, it's definitely not Ryan Heights Cabot for obviously a lot of those variants wouldn't be but or any of them but we add a decent amount of sugar to help dry out the beer um that means there's less fermentables for micro for micro purposes there's also um high bitterness so we're close to 50 ibus with that beer okay and that also really helps to make sure that the beer stays stays in check in those barrels um that's interesting because so many stout brewers that are trying to build that chewy body in those barrel-aged stouts are pushing higher and higher Play-Doh uh, you know, beers into those barrels and Which 10 is, or 15 yeah. Play-Doh going into in a barrel. And you guys are going – where do you uh, – what kind of uh, Play-Doh are they when they go into barrels? Do you know? Off the top of my head, I like to say about five to six. Okay. So they're hot, they're yeah. higher, but it, it's a mm. twenty-three Play-Doh beer, so yeah. it's still seventy-five, eighty percent attenuation yeah. when it goes into the barrel. All beer that goes into the barrel is contaminated. I don't care what any <laughs> other brewer says. Uh, sure, if sure. they're saying it's not contaminated, that's because they didn't test for it. You know, um, I wrote a story about that for our magazine that yeah. uh, all beer, all beer is infected or all beer is contaminated. And, and you're, I think you're absolutely right. So please tell me more about this. Things live even when it's filled with 130 proof spirit. There are bugs living in that wood. Yeah. Uh, so empty it out. Tra- let it travel for a few weeks. Let it sit in your brewery until you're ready to fill it. Um, there's nothing you can do to that wood to sanitize it. Um, so there will be bugs. Can you reduce the amount of bugs so that the contamination is, doesn't become a flavor impact? Absolutely. Um, but if you say your beer is not contaminated or doesn't have micro that you do not want in there, then you're lying to yourself. Um, we test here all the time. I just um, want to say amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> but again, what yeah. is acceptable in industry terms, typically you're looking at uh, a certain amount of contamination. You know, if you're below a certain threshold, you won't have a flavor impact. 
Um, it, it's really a matter of how much does a brewer want to roll the dice. We do pasteurize all of our yeah. um, wood aged beers for multiple reasons now. One of them is just the beer is contaminated. It's in wood. You can't stand, sanitize wood. Um, the other issue is that it's bottled on a line that we also use for sour product. Yeah. So we don't want to risk that. We know people are putting these products in their cellar. Um, and where we take that step to ensure quality long term, um, oxidation, micro are really challenging when you're working with barrels. So you sh- we believe that you should be taking as many precautions to extend the shelf life of that, that product. Even if we also believe that the beer is ready to consume when we we release it. We don't want to be selling beer that someone has to sit on for a year. Sure. Um, that's sort of, we want to be doing all the aging here. That's sort of, we're lager brewers. We're used to letting beer sit around for long periods of time. So that doesn't bother us. Um, but like beers like our, um, our maker series, which is a, uh, what we call lager wine is, uh, essentially barley wine, but brewed with lager yeast. Um, we, that beer can sit for 18 months before we release it. So mm. we're willing to sit on beer a long time to make sure it's ready ready to go out. So with, with Framing Hammer, you do lager it before you put it into barrels? Absolutely, you, yeah. So no. we lager it, make sure it's past all our quality checks. So we'd, we'd be willing to release that beer um, non-barrel aged. And then yeah. we put that beer into barrels. And we're generally looking at around the three month mark for for a lot of these there's a lot of different opinions on how long beer should sit in the barrels it it really depends on what flavor characteristics you're trying to pick up um the bourbon flavor tends to by week four to six not increase at that point Hmm. um and if anything will start to slowly decline in our in our experience Um, but you pick up other flavors it may not necessarily be the bourbons declining but the wood characters picking up and yeah. taking over. But the biggest concern for us is really oxidation. Yeah. So the longer it sits in the barrel, the more oxidation, the more risk you have to the the quality of that beer long term. So we're looking to find the right window where we can pick up enough flavor, but also make sure that the beer isn't going to also turn on us and go bad. Are you using more chocolate malts uh, from England in that one too? Or? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, mo- most of the time when we're doing dark beers, we're, we're doing a blend of, of two to three different yeah. roasted malts. Yeah. Um, does, is, uh, can you ferment that one with your house lager yeast or uh, does that one take its own uh, its own beast? It takes its time, but uh, we, we do use our house lager yeast. Our okay. house lager yeast is fantastic. It does whatever we want. If we wanted to ferment at 40 degrees, I think it would do it. Wow. Um, we've certainly had issues where glycol jackets have uh, got stuck open and the beer's cooled down to 38 degrees and we didn't do anything and the beer warmed back up to 50 degrees after three days. Um, and that was, with, uh, that was about three years ago with our 8.5% Double bucket did that, so <laughs> if it can do that, it could probably. And the yeast uh, came, went back to work after that. Yeah, it came back. Wow. We didn't reuse it. We weren't sure how yeah. happy it was at that point, <laughs> but uh, it it fermented that beer out and uh, you know didn't have any off flavors that 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 we were concerned about, and we were able to uh, 
still package that beer and yeah i mean we we it's still a beer that we give eight weeks to, to condition so it's not like we were rushing that beer but um our, our lager yeast here is very very hearty uh, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, I, I did notice as we were taking a walk around the brewery that uh, you, you've you got a lab out there, you know, front and center. Um, imagine that, uh, you know, doing yeast count uh, and making sure that your yeast is healthy is a pretty hugely important thing for you, especially given the size of, of your batches. You're brewing at a 60-barrel brew house into 240-barrel tanks. And, uh, you know, you can't afford with lagers for, for those to, to go bad um, or for them not to not to ferment. Um, tell me a little bit about that process that you've built and, uh, you know, how you, you make sure that you're successful with this stuff. The lab was a commitment from very early on. We've had full-time lab staff, I think since year two, um, we have four full-time lab, uh, including one, um, packaging tech, uh, packaging quality tech. So just doing seams and package DO and, and all those fun end of, end of process testing. But particularly for loggers, again, going back to the process, having a really robust quality program is super important. Our yeast, I, I, it's probably going to come back completely opposite of what I just said about how robust our yeast is. Our yeast is really temperamental. (laughs) Um, Unless we're treating it ideally, and temperature is fortunately not one of the things that it's most concerned about, but we have a very, very narrow window for which we can harvest our yeast. We have a very narrow window for which we can pitch our yeast. If we overpitch, if we underpitch, we have very poor fermentations um, with with our lager yeast. We now with Springdale we have uh, we use a bunch of ale strains, but you throw a Belgian ale strain and that twenty five your twenty five percent of your ideal pitch rate, and the thing's done fermenting in two days. Maybe you have a different fermentation profile than you would at full pitch, but it doesn't care. Where lager yeast, you you pitch at twenty five percent, and three weeks later you're still trying to ferment the beer. It's not very happy. Um, so it's taken us seven years. We're still in the process, but. It's taken us a long time to really get a strong grip on exactly how we use it, what our standard, our SOP is for harvesting yeast, pitching yeast, what cell counts are appropriate, and being able to monitor it the entire time. You know, one microscope is pretty inexpensive, and it it doesn't take a lot of time to figure out how to use it appropriately. You could probably take a one day uh, college course on sure. on using sure. a microscope and a hundred dollars later you're you're an expert on cell counts. Every single brewer here, every single seller guy, everyone in the lab obviously knows how to do a cell count. If the labs no one in the in the lab is here at nine o'clock at night and we have to pitch yeast, we're taking a cell count. That brewer's gonna know what the cell count is and if it's under pitched they can add add more yeast, um, but we're not gonna. We can't be taking chances on our fermentations. Yeah. We have to make sure, both from a time perspective, but more importantly, a quality perspective, that every batch of beer is 
properly pitched and it's more important for loggers than than nails so you mentioned that what is that kind of window you a narrow window to you know to pitch a narrow window to uh you know harvest um are we talking you know 6 12 24 hours 48 hours it, it's not uh for pitching or for repitching right. so again everyone's going to be different we're unique because we spun our tanks right. and our beers are under high pressure yeah uh, our yeast yeah. is under high pressure so from the time that we hit terminal to the time that we pitch, we have a 72-hour window here to pitch that yeast again. Okay. Um, we won't pitch after that point because we find that the, the, the health of our yeast isn't, doesn't meet our quality expectations and won't give us the fermentation that we're looking for. Okay. So we have a very small window. Fortunately, we brew a lot of lager here, yeah, so that, we're able you know, to when you when you harvest it, do you keep it under pressure? Do you slowly let it off pressure? I mean, how do you keep that uh, from shocking the yeast after you harvest it? Because I we, imagine we if it's we, coming out, yeah. Of, so we don't yeah. collect yeast. Uh, we we only do cone to cone pitching okay. here. So we're making sure that within three days of terminal, it is in another beer, and that so it keeps it. Yeast management becomes a big part of our head brewer's job. He's always monitoring how many generations. You don't get a lot of generations out of lager yeast. Um, How many generations do you typically go? I mean, I guess that's going to be different depending on how big of a beer you're brewing with it. But We we have sort of a standard five-generation rule. We're willing to go up to 10 if we have a, a weird situation where Maybe we started. We tried to start a new uh, yeast strain, but it hasn't quite taken off how we expected, and we have to go a little higher. But I would say, on average, five or six is is our sort of max limit for yeah. for repitching, which is challenging. So every month we're starting a, a whole new culture of yeast and making sure that it's healthy, ready to go, and and can take over for the last one. How, do you uh, internally grow that up, or do you uh, you bring those in and then grow them up from there, or yeah, so we, we kind of do a hybrid. We don't do it from a slant. Uh, the amount of, for us, in our opinion, uh, growing it from a single cell or it's just too much time and effort. Yeah. Um, we, we get um, on average anywhere from a 10 to maybe larger size pitch, and then we'll grow it up to a 240 barrel. So it could yeah. take, a, it'd take three, three, four weeks until we're ready to get that into. Uh, a full full batch here but we do do smaller batches we do we have a 60 barrel brew house but what we'll do is we'll divert 10 barrels of wort uh we'll start our culture in there yeah and then we're, we're able to grow it fairly easily through normal normal brewing techniques versus having to in a lab grow up that yeast sure. under um, lab conditions that makes sense Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Springdale. You know, we mentioned it the first, but, uh, you know, Jack's Abbey, the you know, original company's lager focus, and you've kept Jack's Abbey all lager. Um, you know, but naturally as brewers, you, you, you get curious and uh, you get excited about some other things. And you want to make some other beers. And so um, so you launched Springdale as a brand, uh, you know, so that you could ostensibly make sour beer. Um from the non-German tradition, from the yes. maybe the Belgian tradition, uh, you know, and, the, and you've now also launched some other kind of ales, uh, you know, under that Springdale brand. Uh, how did that come about, and how do you, you know, kind of uh, you know, maintain that difference between the two? 
Well, Springdale's a huge project. We currently have 2,500 barrels, uh, brewer's barrels of beer in wood right now. And that was a progression for the last seven years. So we started with Framinghammer, and when we when we emptied out Framinghammer, we had these barrels, and we didn't know what to do with them. Did we just throw them away? Did we try to find someone to buy them? Could we put beer in them again? And I think it was 2013, we did a, a fairly large batch of Framinghammer for us. We had like 20, bar- 20 burn barrels left over. We thought it'd be great to try to do a sour beer in those barrels. We had the wood here. So we did a cherry beer uh, now known as Creek Mythology. And we had 20 barrels, that's four years ago, and it just kept on growing. So we had so much fun with it. One of the brewers at the time was really interested in, in the wood aging with working with all the bugs. And about three years ago, when we moved into this new facility, we had about 200 barrels that were had some sort of sour beer project in them. And we, we kind of came to a point where we either had to dial it back because it was becoming a full-time job, or we had to go for it, expand it, and give it its own time and attention that it deserved. So we decided to open Springdale. We opened in 2016. And we've been significantly expanding it. We we walked through that earlier. And again, we have maybe 1,500 bourbon and wine barrels or small format wood barrels. And we have seven, soon to be 10 folders. And really what we wanted to do with Springdale was give that experimentation a, a bigger outlet. And we have... I don't even know how many different projects that we have. We probably introduced about 20 different sour beers in 2018. And we're continuing to trial different different projects from different fruits in the barrels to different bugs that we're using to ferment to different primary fermentation techniques, different secondary fermentation techniques, and trying to we're still learning a lot on on that side, but it's really given us that outlet to really be creative, use ingredients that we wouldn't use on on the jack side, and it has to be a, a labor of love to a large degree because I mean it's a it's a pretty expensive real estate footprint here in Framingham, Massachusetts, to give as much room as you have to that many you know sour beer barrels um, and you mentioned you only are packaging twice a month the volume that you're packaging is not huge um, and then you also have a very uh, you know blue collar release approach to this where you're not making people stand in line for special releases you're putting it out there through your normal distribution footprint at pretty reasonable prices uh, you know and uh, and these beers are accessible um, you know which is a, a little bit different than you know the model that some other people are taking with this kind of sour beer uh, is is that philosophically based and again how do you make that whole model work? Well, it's a big space, so it's thirty thousand square feet. We're going to make about a thousand barrels of 
sour beer this year. Uh, we hope to grow it long term to maybe fifteen hundred barrels. So we don't have huge barrelage uh, <laughs> goals grow to there. Fifteen hundred barrels. <laughs> but you, you yeah. look at that space. Yeah, yeah. to make fifteen hundred barrels of beer, we need thirty thousand square feet of space. As far as sending beer to distribution, that's that's always been our model. We open seven. I can't. It's it's crazy how much the industry has changed just in seven years. I can't imagine what the brewers have been around for 20 years are saying. But I feel like we, we already feel like the old guard. We're only seven years in business. And when we opened seven years ago, on-site sales wasn't a thing. You couldn't even do it in the state when we yeah. opened. Um, small. Some people had some small growler fill areas. Maybe you can go to a brewery to buy a beer. But it wasn't a... When we wrote our business plan, we didn't include any sales for retail, and that's only seven years ago. Yeah, I, I can't imagine anyone writing the same business plan that that we wrote. We also wrote a business plan that said we were going to brew three thousand barrels of beer in ten years, and we signed a fifteen-year lease on five thousand square feet. So we didn't really know exactly <laughs> what we were doing. Yeah, uh, we quickly realized that as soon as we started brewing close to three thousand barrels of beer, that this thing was never going to be profitable selling five week old lager beer at through distribution at, you know, a $10 six pack or whatever right, you're right. trying to hit. Um, but that, that's been the, the, the business plan we had was a distribution model. Yeah. It was to get beer out. Um, and when we opened, we didn't see our consumer necessarily as the, or sorry, our customer as the end consumer. We saw our customer as the liquor stores, the package store, the bar owner. That was our customer. That's who we were selling beer to. Yeah. Um, and we really took us a long time to realize that's not who we're selling beer to right. necessarily. Because that's who we saw was yeah, buying yeah. the beer, but we didn't fully understand the the end consumer side, and that's really been uh, something since we've opened. We we've spent a lot more time and and been able to um, think about in a in a different different way. What way? How has that changed the way that you? Uh, you know, does it change the way that you approach? Your product lineup? Does it uh, the way that you package? Uh, you know, oh, what, absolutely. Yeah. We we use our. For for Jacks, the the beer hall is a just an amazing opportunity for us to get. We new say products. beer hall. You have a full on restaurant with a full kitchen that's all owned by you all. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So we run the beer hall. It's uh, five thousand square feet, full kitchen, focused mainly on on pizza, but we have a number of of entrees in there as well. But when we also when we opened Springdale, we we made sure that we allocated five thousand square feet for the Springdale tap room. So we have a very large tap room space, and that was really to bring people in. And having that feedback has been huge for us, particularly on the Jack side. For us, the number one seller, four to five weeks out of the year, is going to be our Blood Orange wheat beer, hmm. which is a beer we never would have brewed. It's it's uh, Radler, sort of an odd style, of, um, particularly for distribution here in the U.S. But as a brewery that has a restaurant that has the public coming to us, and they're not beer geeks necessarily, and most of them aren't. They're just locals who want pizza and beer. Um, Blood Orange became a 
such a huge part of what we do at the beer hall that we introduced it into distribution. And that is potentially going to be our number two brand this year. <laughs> so a beer that we wanted yeah. to brewed three years ago is probably our number two brand. If it's not number two for, it'll be number three for 18. It'll probably be number two for 2019. And that experience here really helped us to develop that beer and to launch that beer into the general market. So that it's just been a, an amazing opportunity for us. It is kind of interesting to see, um, you know, uh, how those unexpected beers that you never thought were going to become a thing kind of take on a life of their own. And, and then uh, you get to go run with it as the brewery and uh, you can either fight it. And there are some breweries that do and say, no, we're not going to make it. We're not going to let it become that beer. But uh, uh, it seems like you have a, a customer friendly approach to this. And- yeah. And also if it's in our German inspiration, the Rattler is what you know it's it's everywhere it, when you go go over to in, in in beer halls you can you can find rattler um but yeah i mean who are we to tell the consumer what they they should or shouldn't drink we're going to try to create the the best product that we can and and hope that people are interested in in drinking it and fortunately for us uh things like house lager which may not be your most typical craft style right now i don't know who else has a hellas for their flagship there's probably a few others i'm I'm not really really sure but it's just for us been a a great way to differentiate the products that we're we're selling from from other brewers so we're not focusing on on ipa we're not you know uh, we still haven't introduced a a year-round ipa and springdale has some ipas but it's you know it's a few hundred barrels of beer for the year or something like that um it's interesting that we've been able to create this brewery here. We're going to do 50,000 barrels of beer after seven years and no IPA has come out on the Jack side. Um, so getting, 50, getting 50, people up. Yeah. 50,000 barrels with no IPA and, uh, and all are mostly loggers. 90 some odd percent mm-hmm. lager is uh, it's quite a feat. I, I try every, every often you, people will say that to you and you, you don't think about it when you're in it. And then yeah. you're like, yeah, I guess that is interesting. We're brewing 60% decoction beers and we're spending all these tanks and, but we're in an IPA world. So we're trying to like find where we fit and, and hope that uh, people appreciate having that alternative to, to what, what is so popular these days. Well, cheers to doing it the hard way, Jack. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's that's our motto. <laughs> not not because we do it on purpose; we just do that to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, uh, poor planning and uh, uh, not knowing what you're doing will will tend to do that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I think you've learned a few things, and thank you for sharing some of those things you've learned with us uh, here on the podcast. Um, Jack Hendler, Jack's Abbey, and Springdale. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, this was great. Thanks. Cool. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we hope you'll subscribe. Hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Uh, If you also enjoyed it, please subscribe to the Craft Beer and Brewing magazine at beerandbrewing.com. If you want to uh, learn more about Jack's Abbey and Springdale, uh, where can they find you guys out there on the uh, the interwebs? We're at jacksabbey.com, springdalebeer.com, and you can find us on Instagram. Facebook, Twitter as well. Sounds good. Cool. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks, Jack. Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.